You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, come and visit us now, that the eyes of our hearts would be open to behold the resurrected Lord, and that that event and that that man would become real in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would draw your attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, in your bulletin and on page 961 if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles. One of the great chapters in the entirety of the Bible. Uh, Magnificent in its declaration of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us through the resurrection. Amen. Through the resurrection over death and the grave. And the first part of chapter 15, which most of us uh, probably are familiar with, is Paul giving the fact of the resurrection. He's saying this is exactly what happened. We're not peddling myths, nor are we using underhanded means or uh, conniving or any sort of half measure in order to convey this to you, but we're conveying to you fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. People saw him. People touched him. And it's true. But then we get to the bit of scripture where we are this morning, where Paul begins to talk about, well, those are the facts of the resurrection, but now I want to talk about what the resurrection means. It's not simply an event, it's about a man. It's about a man who was raised from the dead. And by doing such, changed the history of the world and changed your life and my life forever. Here Paul lays out what the future of the universe is as well as what the future of humanity is. For in the first instance, Paul says that Christ's resurrection delivers Christians from fear of death. He says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now most of us avoid any thought of death whatsoever. In fact, that's one of the reasons statistically that we find that Americans keep themselves so busy. One of the number one reasons why Americans are less likely to take vacation than anybody else in the world is because in those moments of quiet and stillness on the beach, our minds begin to wander toward things of significance. And often, it's death. What is my life about? Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? But moreover, what's going to happen to me when I die? Now, there's a lot of sentimentality around death in our culture. We're prone to use euphemisms. We don't even like to use the word dead or died or death. And we even sentimentalize funerals. There's nothing worse than a preacher getting up and preaching a funeral and pretending to know the dead person when they don't. I mean, you've sat through those funeral sermons, haven't you? And you elbow your neighbor and you say, who in the world is he talking about? The moment that a preacher says that somebody was a Christian gentleman, it's over. But we do fear death. And most of us realize that we don't know what lies ahead and we're afraid because after death comes judgment. What is it going to look like for us? 
But here, St. Paul looks death square in the eyes and declares what it really is. It's the enemy. It will be the last enemy that Christ destroys. But here in this life, it's an active and living enemy. Death is nonetheless. But here he uses what might sound like a euphemism to us, but is actually a benefit of being a Christian. That is, Paul says that we are, there are those who have fallen asleep. He's not trying to soft-pedal death, but what he's saying is that for a Christian, death is not the final word. And this is not true of everyone in the world. This is only true of Christians. These great promises are, those, are for those who put their trust in Christ. And so when we die in the Lord Jesus Christ... Death is not the final word, and I love how the burial office tells us that even in the grave, our song is Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Death does not get the final word. In preparing for this sermon, I looked up uh, the word cemetery. Uh, now we don't even use that word, don't we? It's memorial garden, uh, or whatever it is. Uh, but I looked up the word cemetery, and do you know that its original meaning was almost exactly that of the word dormitory. Like a school dormitory. Because the idea was that Christians would die, yes, that they would sleep in the Lord, but that that place was a temporary resting place. Why? Because they were going to get up one morning. And that's the truth of the resurrection for us. That even when we die, we're asleep in the Lord, and one day we will be awoken by Him. Jesus shows us this in his raising of Jairus' daughter. You remember the story where Jesus <clears throat> lands and, uh, and there's a great crowd and he can't press through the crowd and Jairus' daughter is very sick and it takes him so long to get to the house that by the time he arrives they say, Jesus, she's already dead. It's not even worth going inside. But Jesus responds, she's not dead. She's just fallen asleep. Now, Jesus is not saying she slipped into a coma, but he's using the same language that Paul uses here, that death for this little girl is not the final word. And it made such a mark on the early Christian church that the Aramaic that Jesus spoke to this little girl was never translated. It's still, you can look in your Bibles tonight and see that it's still there in the Aramaic, Talitha Kumi. I say to you, little girl, arise. It was seared on their hearts, this promise that in Jesus we sleep, but one day he's going to say to you and me, little boy, little girl, child of mine, I say to you, arise. Now Jesus can more easily raise a 12-year-old from death than you can raise your 12-year-old for school on a weekday morning. Do you realize that? That with a word, Jesus can do that. And he's only able to do that because he himself was raised from the dead. This is the power and authority of Jesus. Not just authority over the dead, but over death itself. This is what verse 20 tells us. Paul uses a strange word here when he says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. 
Now the image that he's trying to conjure up is that time in the life of the Jewish people where the harvest would come in and they would take the very first of the crop and they'd go into Jerusalem and take it up to the temple and present it to the Lord, thereby consecrating the entire harvest. Lord, here is the first in order to ensure that the rest would be blessed. And if you read commentators, they actually tell us when this moment was. It was the first day after the first Sabbath of the Passover. Which is when? Today. And so when Jesus raises himself from the, is being raised from the dead, he is the first fruits, presenting himself to the world in a promise that we too will follow him. Now, if you've been listening to any of my sermons, you'll know that we keep adding an inordinate number of animals to our family. And if you come over to the house and we're building a big boat in the backyard, it, it would make sense. Uh, but we've added a cat uh, to our family. And one day I was looking for the cat and I couldn't find him. And I found him in the most improbable of places. In this little tiny crevice. And I thought, how in the world did that cat get in there? And he was able to get in and out. And so I looked at the crevice and I looked at the cat and couldn't figure it out. So I did what all of you would do. I went and I Googled it. And what I found, and you probably already know this, is that a cat can determine what it can get into and out of based on its whiskers. Because a cat's whiskers are only as wide as the, as the widest part of its body. And so if they put their head in and their whiskers don't touch, they can get through with no problem. And I think that this is what Paul is trying to say about Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus is able to make it through, then there's no doubt for us believers that we too will follow that if he has come through death in the grave and been raised, then that means that we know that we too will come through with him. And so we see that Paul here in verse 20 spells out the deliverance that Christ gives to his people over death. Death is not the final word. It's not something to be feared. But so too Paul tells us that Christ's resurrection delivers humanity from the curse of Adam. In verses 21 through 23 Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man is also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Well, death for any of us means much more than physical dissolution. It's not simply that we're all going to die, which is true, but death is the penalty of sin. And it means not just death, but the separation of the soul from God. This is what makes death so grievous for us. It's, of course, grievous that we're going to leave our loved ones behind. But more grievous is it that those who die not reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who don't know the power of his resurrection, because death for them is the final word. And the curse that lies upon Adam and you and me is not that we are only laid in the grave, but in that grave we are separated from God. 
And so all in Adam have fallen. We all fall short of the glory of God, and we feel it. But we read here that by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Now why is that? Well, later on here in verse 25, Paul quotes Psalm chapter 8. And Psalm chapter 8 talks about what God's ideal plan for the world was. And that is that Adam and Eve and their offspring would have dominion over the world. And they would rule and will rule creation. And it would be marked by peace. And yet, they failed in that as we fail. And so in Hebrews 2, we're told, Psalm 8 again is quoted, and it says, because we were unable to do it, God came amongst us and did it himself. And so that which we were incapable of accomplishing, God himself became man in order that one day man would be able to go to God. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. He has come and he's dwelt amongst us, and he's died and he's been raised for us. But more than sin being a theological concept of being separated from God, which is very much indeed a reality, it manifests itself in each and every single one of our lives. It's amazing to me the technological progress that we've made as a people. Just think of all the things we've been able to accomplish, not just in the history of the world, but even in the past 100, 125 years. The Victorians thought that the 20th century would be the greatest age of all. But in spite of all of our technological advancements, one thing hasn't been able to advance, and that's our broken human nature. The 20th century showed us more death, depravity, and degradation than any other century that the world has ever seen. You've learned of all of the events. I don't need to rehearse them here. But in spite of looking forward to a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, we saw more death than any other century. And in fact, more Christians were martyred in the 20th century alone than all previous centuries combined. But more than that, not just what's going on outside of us, but what's going on within us. Through Adam came death. And if you're anything like me, you feel this death inside you every single day of your life. So many of us are, pl are plagued by a numbness that seems to overcome us. We want to be able to take greater advantage of life, to grow deeper with one another. But we don't know how. We want desperately to have a human connection with someone else, and yet it never comes. We plead, just one friend, just one person to pour my heart out to, just one person to listen, just a flicker of connection with my husband, with my wife, the ability to speak to my children without it turning into an argument, and even to look at our lives and to know that by the world standards we have it all and yet feel so empty inside. This world has nothing for us and this world has everything. We feel this alienation 
We feel this enmity on a daily basis. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead says to us that this is coming to an end. For not only does a relationship with the Lord Jesus give us fellowship with God, it gives us fellowship with one another. Because Christ's resurrection delivers the universe from all hostile forces. We see this in verses 24 through 26. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now Jesus' resurrection inaugurates all of this. It's not the end, it's the beginning. And Christ is now reigning. But what is his reign marked by? Now, if you would ask me that, even before this week when I studied this passage, I would have said, well, his reign is marked by peace. But what does Paul say? It's marked by conflict and warfare. Because Christ from his throne now does battle with the effects of the fall in Adam. And this battle has been raging for 2,000 years. And the reason why we feel it is because the, the battle rages around us, it rages within us, and that's why Paul elsewhere in Ephesians says to put on the whole armor of God. And so when Christ is raised from the dead, he delivers us from all these hostile forces. For when he comes again, he'll set the world to rights. But you notice that the language he uses here is one of subjection, one of submission. Because what we're talking about is not just an isolated event in history. Now, if there's ever an event, it's the resurrection. But we're talking about a person, a man who was raised from the dead. That's one of the things I love about our stained glass windows. They not only tell the story of Jesus, they show us who he is. And so there we see him in, his, in the resurrection window with his glorified body still marked by scars, but there he stands. Yes, you see the empty tomb, but who takes up the picture? The risen Lord Jesus. Paul is saying that when we think of the resurrection, think of the Lord Jesus. And to live in the power of the resurrection means to come under his authority and submit to him. Because that is exactly what he's bringing when he comes again. When he comes to reign. Because our propensity as human beings is to act like Adam and to try to put everything in subjection under ourselves. The answer to the old Adam is to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps or to try to take control. When Paul says no, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, you're to get behind him and to submit to him as your risen king and savior. And I pray that this news makes your heart sing hallelujah. Because I'll admit, it doesn't always make mine. Has the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ become commonplace for you? When we say, hallelujah, Christ is risen. Yeah, the Lord is risen indeed. And I was convicted by this as I watched the NCAA tournament. You knew I'd get UVA in. <laughs> I was watching the tournament, and that thing took years off my life. I'm thinking about a class action, if anybody else is interested. And what really did it for me 
were the last several games. In that Purdue game, when the free throw rebound went into the backcourt, and I reached for the remote, thankfully it was long enough away where I, I actually saw the no-look half-court pass and the, the basket made, and I immediately jumped to my feet and yelled, I can't believe it! He made it! He made it! Uh, the room was shaking, the dogs were upset, it, it turned the house upside down in pandemonium. I'll go ahead and skip over the Auburn game. But then, but then, and then I, I was in Minneapolis when it happened, and people said, well, how was it? And I said, I actually have to watch it again to make sure it happened. I was in a daze. I believed it, but I could not believe it. And I thought, here I am, jumping up and down, changing the entire course of my household, making the house shake, declaring a wonderful declaration of I can't believe it but it has happened upsetting everybody in the house and there I am yeah he's risen indeed but we look to the man Jesus Christ have you been overcome with the power of the resurrection do you know what that means that you no longer have to fear death and that one day that's the last great enemy that Jesus himself will bury. That he's undone all the effects of the old Adam. And that he saved you and me by his death and resurrection. And not only restored us to fellowship with God the Father, but allowed us to be in relationship with one another. And that from his throne, this 2,000 year battle rages on. And yet the victory is his. And when he comes, everything will be placed in subjection under him. And then the war will end. The blood-stained banner will be rolled up. And he will reign. And as his sons and daughters, we will cast our crowns before him. And saying, Lord, the victory is yours. And praising God that he loved us enough to die for us and to be raised for us that we might know the power of his resurrection. Hallelujah. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.